Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. Some of believers' favorite words from this gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today to give you glory for your greatness and majesty. Lord, again, we praise you that you have gathered us together today to worship you, uh, to extol your name, to meet with our God. Lord, this is the greatest blessing that a man can know, to be in right relationship with you, to have a savior, to have a redeemer, a substitute, a friend, an elder brother in the Lord Jesus. What blessed people we are today. Father, as we open up your word, I pray that the good news of the gospel would sound forth. That good news of a crucified, buried, and risen Lord. The good news that a savior has come, that he has died in our place, giving up his life as, a, as the once for all sacrifice for sinners. That today he is seated in the highest place, reigning in everlasting victory. God, I pray that this good news, the witness of his sinless life, his atoning death, the great love with which you have loved us, that that would encourage us, that it would challenge us, that it would convict our hearts. Lord, as your word is proclaimed, till Christ is formed in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first part of chapter 18, where Christ assures his disciples that God is one who answers the cries of his people. He said that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Speaking about the discipline of prayer, he encourages his disciples. He exhorts followers of Christ both then and now, don't let yourself succumb to, to, to spiritual depression, to spiritual despondency. Rouse yourself, take hold of God, and do so continuously, uh, persistently, regularly, unrelentingly, believingly keep praying, seek the face of God. But then there is the caution that needs to be offered. Following right on the heels of that word, we find a second parable, not on the necessity of prayer, but the manner of prayer. The way sinful men must learn to come to God. Now, if you look at at verse nine, Uh, Verse nine sets the context and it gives us the audience that Jesus is addressing in this parable. It says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I'll just notice there that Jesus is able to see right into the heart. The word of God incarnate is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what does he draw out? Two things, two big ideas. First, there's the problem of false worship. Now you might think to yourself, oh, wait a minute. I don't see any idols here. There aren't any sacrifices that are being offered, but take a closer look at what Jesus says. He says that the men here that he has in view are men who trust in themselves. In other words, they are, they're exercising faith. They're putting their hope and their confidence, in this case, in them, in themselves. As they look at themselves in the mirror, They esteem themselves. They like what they see. And they're trusting in that. They're trusting not in an external objective righteousness that comes from without. That's not what these men delight in. It's what they see in themselves. And that is what gives them assurance and confidence as they think about appearing before the Lord. But they're, they're men of faith. They're exercising faith. And this is something that all of us do in one way or another. We're all exercising faith. We're always putting our trust in something or someone. We're born worshipers. That's how God has made us. That means you come out of the womb as a person of faith. You might not think of yourself that way, but it's it's inescapable. Right now, there is something or someone that you are leaning on, something upon which your your confidence and your strength and all of your reliance rests upon. This parable is about people whose trust finds its foundation 
and what they see in themselves. And you, you can see the counterpart to that. They treat others with contempt. And this is always what happens whenever you uh, look in the mirror and you use anything but the word of God as your standard for righteousness. Whenever the mirror of the word of God, think about what James says, when that stops being what you look into to get a handle on who you really are, you begin to despise and look down upon people around them. You use other men as your standard and you become really good, really adept at seeing all of their flaws, all of the ways that you outshine them. To put it another way, you glory in yourself. That's what trusting yourself really is. It's self-worship. It's self-magnification. It's self-adoration. And that becomes something that is reflected in your dealings with other men. You, you treat them with contempt and disdain because that's the only way you can get away with this. That's the only way that you can get away with trusting in yourself is by using other men to get a leg up with God and presenting yourself to them saying, but, but look at them, I'm not de- doing nearly so bad as this other guy over here. So those are the two big ideas that, that prompt the Lord Jesus to provide this parable that illuminates the way, the only way that men can come to God. So listen again to what he says. Uh, Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray one, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Now, don't rush to, to import everything that you associate, all of those modern-day associations you have with tax collectors just yet into this picture. We have a challenge facing us today as 21st century readers, because we hear the word Pharisee and immediately what comes to mind, what word we think of a, thank you, a hypocrite. That's immediately what comes to mind. It's just what we think. We think of spiritual hypocrisy. We think of external uh, empty religion, legalism, religious arrogance. And that's not without just cause, Jesus frequently exposes and condemns the Pharisees on account of these things for the vain religion that they practice. But for the, for the first century Jew or the Gentile for that matter, it was understood that Pharisees were the devout ones. They were the ones that were spiritually minded. They were the ones who were serious about the things of God. They attended very carefully to the law, uh, fastidiously so. They were morally upstanding people. They were the kind of people that you wanted to have as neighbors. So of the two men in this, in this parable, the Pharisee is the admirable one, okay? He is the one that you expect to find going up to the temple to pray. Just hold that idea in your mind. And then on the other hand, you have a tax collector, 
a known scoundrel. This is someone whose, whose reputation is on the other end of, of the spectrum. He is someone who is known not for being morally upstanding. He is known to be someone uh, who rips other people off for a living. Uh, he, he adds on his own uh, taxes and fees on top of what the Roman establishment already requires at whatever rate he chooses. He's the bad guy in the story. He's the low life, one would think. Truth be told, they're both bad guys. It's just that one knows it and the other doesn't. This is where the twist comes in in this story. But Jesus sets the story up in a very specific way that has the first century audience looking not at the Pharisee, but at the tax collector, thinking to themselves, what is he doing here going up to the temple to pray? Who does he think he is showing up at the sanctuary of God? They're both going up to worship, but one of them seems entirely out of place and it's not the Pharisee. That's the catch. Well, then comes the irony that begins to unfold in this story. We, we get to hear first from the Pharisee. Look at verse 11, if you will. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We talked earlier about false worship. How is this man's false worship expressed? It is expressed through pious sounding prayer, through proud prayer. He goes to the Lord and he rehearses all of the ways that he's not like other men. And he thinks of some of the worst vices that come to mind and he thinks, oh God, I am so thankful that I don't muck about in that kind of stuff. I am so thankful, Lord, that I haven't stooped to those kinds of levels. I'm not even like this tax collector. Well, there, there you have one of the telltale signs of self-trusting, self-righteous men, always looking for someone else that you can prop yourself up on. Someone else that is doing worse in life than you are and that makes you feel good. A self-trusting man is someone that spends all of his time looking out at other people instead of inward at himself in self-examination or upward at the holiness of God. Over time, That habit works to deaden the conscience to his own depravity. That becomes the ground in which he boasts his own performance vis-a-vis that of other men. Now, we like to cherry pick when we do this, don't we? We like to cherry pick the kind of people that we compare ourselves to. Uh, This man is very selective, isn't he, in his sampling of other sinners. It's the especially grievous things he calls to mind. 
uh, that he sees another man that causes his chest to swell with pride. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that the standard of righteousness the Lord is concerned with isn't other men, but the Lord's own purity and perfection and righteousness. It's the infinite glory and beauty of God's holiness against which we are all measured, not against other men. God doesn't grade on a, on a curve. It's against the, the standard of, of God's righteousness that the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, not that of other men. And the point here isn't that it's, that it's wrong in some way to be thankful that you haven't fallen into certain kinds of corruption or certain kinds of vices, if that happens to be the case. But this man takes pride in that. He revels in that. And he doesn't see God as the one who has spared him. He doesn't see the Lord as the one who has spared him from those kinds of things. His praise in that way is directed in many ways to himself. His gratitude really isn't directed to God, is it? It's directed toward himself. He's thankful for his own righteousness. Not once does he say there, but for the grace of God, go I. He never acknowledges his own sinful nature and the propensity of his own flesh to fall into the kinds of things other men have. He doesn't acknowledge the dependency that he has on the strength of God to uphold him. He's entirely self-reliant in it all. Young people, many of you have been graciously preserved by the Lord from certain vices that you've seen some of your friends and peers and neighbors and other people that you know fall into. You haven't fallen into some of uh, the morass of sin that so easily entangles. Be careful. Be careful as you think of those things that you don't let that become a point of pride for you. Guard yourself against those kinds of thoughts that say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. There, but for the grace of God, go I. The question that we have at hand here is not how bad we are. It isn't what we have or haven't done. We all share the same fundamental condition and the same fundamental need. The question is whether we are aware of our fallen state and our need of God's forgiveness. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I ask you, dear ones today, are you sick or are you well? How do you understand yourself apart from the working of Christ in your life? Not only does this man recount what he hasn't done, but he gives God a list of all the good things he's done. His good performance, his spiritual achievements, his track record. He says, I fast twice a week. This is like code for saying, I go way beyond what you require of me, God. 
According to the law, fasting was only required annually, just once, annually. The Pharisees had institutionalized a practice, a habit of fasting twice a a, a week. This man adheres to that and he's proud of it. You see the same kind of thing with the the reference to tithing. He says, "I, I give tithes of all that I get. The reason that's significant is that Uh, Everyone at this time understood that it was incumbent on you to give a tithe, to give a tenth of everything that you produced, everything your land produced, that that sort of thing. There's a question, though. It was a matter of some debate as to whether you were required to, to tithe or to give a tenth of what you brought into your house, to what you received. So, for example, if you went to the market and you purchased something, Were you obliged to give a tithe on that? It might sound odd to us. It might sound kind of curious to us to think that this would be even a question. But for the Pharisees, uh, men who were so concerned to uphold the law, this was an important question. Think about when Jesus says, you you tithe uh, mint and dill and cumin. So, Uh, painstakingly attentive they were to the requirements of the law. Well, this man sidesteps this whole question. Uh, Produce, for example, has already been tithed on by the one who's brought it into the the market. You bring it home. He just sidesteps the whole question. He says, "I, I tithe on whatever comes in. I give tithes of all that I get. And brothers and sisters, here's the heart of the matter. He lifts up his voice to pray. Uh, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and what pours forth? The whole theme is one of superiority. It is, it's one who, uh, it's this, this spirit of one who goes beyond the call of duty. You have here a man who manufactures his own standards of righteousness and then he exceeds them and then he looks for ways that other men haven't risen to his artificial standard of righteousness and the net result is that he feels incredibly good about himself before the Lord. And this kind of thing is so insidious And our hearts are so susceptible to it that we may read this portion of scripture and find ourselves despising the Pharisee, thanking God that we're not like him. You see what I mean? We can bask in our own self-righteousness even as we detest the self-righteousness that we see in others. How deceitful our hearts can be. Such is the nature of this sin. We already know the end of this story and instinctively we want to identify with the tax collector. But if we come away from this parable rejoicing that we're not at all like the Pharisee, we've entirely missed the teaching of the text. We've entirely missed it. This man prides himself in his righteousness in his devotion, in his sacrifice to God. And it's on the basis of all of this that he grounds his standing, how he feels about himself. You ever find yourself tempted toward that end, 
tempted to rest in how well you think you have done, tempted to trust in how you feel about your performance before God. Come on, be honest with yourselves today. One author says the Pharisee had beautiful religious feelings when he went to the temple. He felt right with God and with life. So comforting were his religious feelings that he felt sure he was in the kingdom of God. His heart told him so, but his heart told him a lie. Notice what is missing in the Pharisee's prayer. Sometimes it is instructive to see what is not in Scripture, just as as it is instructive to see what is there. Notice what is missing. Does he have any need? Does he make any appeal to the Lord? Is he conscious of anything at all that he is in want of as he appears before the Lord? No, there's nothing. There's nothing at all. Now, look with me at the tax collector. First, you have the contrast that you see before you ever get to the prayer. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. The Pharisee stood by himself The tax collector stands far off and Jesus seems to intentionally be calling our attention to how even their physical posture is emblematic of the posture of the heart. The Pharisee physically distances himself from others almost as if his body is mirroring the attitude of the heart. Remember how he, he prides himself that he is not like other men. And that's reflected in the way he carries himself outwardly. The tax collector, it simply says he stands far off. We might ask ourselves, far off from what? Well, presumably from others. Not because he's proud, but because this isn't the place he's supposed to be, humanly speaking. It's not a stretch to think that he would not have been a welcome sight to many there that day. The Bible tells us he doesn't even dare to lift up his eyes to heaven. In the book of Ezra, there's a vivid picture of this kind of spirit of prayer and returning to the Lord. Ezra says, oh my God, I am ashamed And blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He goes on to recite all of the ways that God's people are in great guilt. They've, They've broken the commands of the Lord. They've committed evil deeds and yet the Lord has punished them far less than their iniquities deserve And so it's in that awareness of God's steadfast love and of his mercy, they come and they humble themselves before the Lord who hears their cry. Well, so also here, the the tax collector stands far off. He, He prostrates the inner man. He doesn't lift up the eyes. He beats the breast. 
So don't think that, that this man here has nothing to, to repent of, that the, the Pharisee is just blind to his sin and the tax collector is innocent. That's not the case at all. This man too is in need of cleansing and he knows it. In fact, there's a, a, a wonderful tension in the tax collector's example to us because on the one hand, sin and shame would warn him away from the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, you know what I'm talking about here. Perhaps you have, you've wandered away from the Lord. You have found yourself entangled in sin and the devil would have you believe that you can't come back to God or that you've got to get yourself cleaned up first before you do. But look at what we see in this man. He knows good and well he doesn't deserve to be there. He knows that. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the place of God's special presence. His sin is too great. Uh, The Lord is too high, too holy. But on the other hand, he knows what God's word has declared He knows that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knows that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. He knows that mercy triumphs over judgment. Perhaps at some point he's, he's heard the Lord Jesus say things like, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are the ones I came to call. I came to call sinners. Do you understand that? To repentance. Not the righteous. Not those who have no need of me, but sinners. And so he prays in repentance and faith, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He comes trembling, but he comes. He comes. He prays not a proud prayer, but a penitent prayer. He prays in keeping with Psalm 40 and verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. You feel the tension here. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. You see it. In God's word, there is full awareness of sin, but also full apprehension of the Lord. Iniquities have overtaken me. And at the same time, there's unrestrained mercies coming from the Lord God himself. And so this man prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. No one else is in the picture. He's not comparing himself to any other man. He's not looking over at the, the Pharisee, not looking at anyone else, no one else around. You notice also he doesn't have anything to offer to God. There, there's no attempt to barter with the Lord. There's nothing he tries to use to negotiate with God. He, he doesn't say, look, God, I, I know I'm not perfect, 
but I try to be a good person. He doesn't say, God, if you'll forgive me, I promise I'll love you forever. I I promise I will serve you for the rest of my life. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, in the original, it's the definite article. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We have a lot of talk in our world today about issues of identity, what you identify as. Here's a man who understands himself rightly. Here's a man who understands himself as he really is before the triune God. He's a, he's a sinner. That's who he is. He is a creature born in sin, born under Adam, born under the condemnation of the law. He had over against the the very religious Pharisee, accurate self-knowledge. He's a sinner in need of God's mercy. And the word mercy is also not the, the ordinary word that is used in the Bible, the word that we would typically associate with something like compassion. It's not, for example, the word that the blind beggar uses later in this same chapter where he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In our text, it's a word that has to do with propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath. As a verb, it is used in just one other place in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter two and verse 17, where it says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says, had to take to himself humanity, that he might put away sin by dying, by dying on the cross. The noun form of this word is used in several places. First John 4 and verse 10 is one of them. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In every case, the word is used to point to the sacrifice that makes atonement for sin. Now, why is this important? Well, it suggests to us that this tax collector understands something central to the saving power of God in the teaching of the whole Bible, that a substitute is necessary to take away sin. As he went up to the temple to pray, he sees in those morning and evening sacrifices a pointer to the need for atonement in order for forgiveness of sins, in order that man might know a right relationship with the Father. And so it's with that kind of knowledge he appeals to God, not from a position of strength or self-righteousness or self-sufficiency, but one of need. He comes as one who's fallen short of the glory of God, one who is spiritually bankrupt. He comes owning his sin, but also owning in faith the father of mercies, laying hold of him. So beloved, I ask you, what 
kind of prayer gets God's attention? What kind of prayer reaches the ear of the Lord? Verse 14, I tell you, Christ's own words, this man, this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus summarizes what we have seen in the two men. One has exalted himself, one has humbled himself. One lifts himself up. He says, God, look at my worthiness. God, I am basically a good person. The other says, God, I am so unworthy. I am unworthy to approach your throne. And he, he bows himself down low. He, he abases himself before the, the thrice holy God, before the God whom angels veil their faces from. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's on the basis of this that this man went down to his house justified. He went down to his home having been declared righteous by God. He went home, in other words, in right relationship with the Father. He went home reconciled to God, sins having been forgiven, not because of what he had done, but because of who his trust was in. Paul says this in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He describes it as the, the free gift of God, the righteousness of God. In Romans chapter four, uh, it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Look, Gracious, glorious news this is. What wonderful news this is for sinners like us. To think that God saves sinners not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, glory be to his name. The tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other. So, Brothers and sisters, let it be impressed upon your heart today. Becoming a religious person is not the way to come to God. Adopting religious practices alone will not save you. That's the irony of this parable. The man who stands condemned in this passage is a highly religious man. This is the, the big upset of Jesus' story. The exemplar of a sinful life was declared righteous. And a Pharisee, the epitome of, of, of devotion to God, was not justified. Harrowing words. He was religious, but he was lost. Now it's time to ask ourselves where we fit in. How can you know whether the confidence that you have before God is legitimate, whether the confidence that you have, the trust, is sound? Is it in your own performance, your own achievements, or is it in someone else? Is it in the work of Jesus Christ? 
Where's the basis of your trust? What do you present to God? Is it yourself, what you have and haven't done? Or is it what God in Christ has done for you? The son of God's substitutionary death on the cross in your place. Where can you find the righteousness that you need in order to stand before the father? You might be a Christian today and realize just listening to this that somewhere along the way you have drifted from this truth that Christ and Christ alone must always only be the object of your trust, the object of your faith, and that somewhere along the way you have found yourself relying on something else, on who you are, or what you have done, or what you haven't done, or your good works, or your baptism, or a prayer that you prayed someday. Instead of looking to Jesus Christ and him crucified as the only ground for right relationship with God. As you know, you can trust in in a prayer instead of trusting in the one to whom you pray. There's a difference. Whoever you are today, whether you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord or you're a Christian, God would have us all come to him with the empty hands of faith and say simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a prayer we can all pray today. Now, Look briefly with me at these last few verses, starting verse 15. These are not disconnected thoughts. We have just seen the Lord addressing some who were occupied with themselves. They were occupied with their own self-worth and interest and their own honor, and they look with contempt at others. Now, we come to verse 15, and it says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. So there, there was this shocking reversal in the previous episode. And in terms of who was welcomed and accepted by God, it was very surprising what, what the turnout was at, at the end of, of that. And you have that here again. Uh, Luke highlights the same thing when he says they were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus. Infants, to to understand why that's so remarkable, you have to realize that in the first century world, uh, infants were regarded as as having almost no value. I heard teenagers fussing earlier in the, not really fussing, but in the the foyer today about who was gonna get to hold little ones. We prize and value little ones, and for good reason, that wasn't so much the case in the first century world. Part of the reason for that is that most of them died in, in childbirth or, or infancy. Uh, it is, it's estimated that no more than about 50% made, made it past the age of, of 10. Uh, most scholars think that only 20 to 30% of children made it to 16 years of age. And you can see then why parents would have been desperate to bring their little ones to Christ. Why parents would have been desperate to have Jesus 
touch their infants. They're looking for a blessing. They want the favor of God to come and rest upon them. And the disciples rebuke them for that. Don't go bothering Jesus. Don't take up his time with with insignificant children. He's too busy for that. Now you see what that implies. It implies that um, we disciples very much merit his time. He can spend his time with us. Well, Jesus has a word for them. Verse 16, let the the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So again, who may come to Christ? It's those and only those who receive the kingdom of God like a child. And the focus here isn't so much on the children themselves, but what you see in a child. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. And what do you see in a child? Well, you see complete helplessness. You see total dependency, total trust, not in themselves, but in another. You see a total lack of self-sufficiency in the same way that we saw it in the tax collector. That is what's commended for all those who would enter the kingdom of God. Those are the ones that make up Christ's congregation. You can see how this calls into question everything that we think about rank and status and who the blessing of God comes to rest upon. What does Paul say in Romans chapter or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That is why you so often find little ones and orphans and widows and sojourners mentioned in Luke's gospel. It isn't incidental. These are types of the ones Christ receives to himself and welcomes into the kingdom of God. Psalm 131 verse two pictures it well. The psalmist confession. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That is the disposition of the soul toward God. Total trust, total dependency, total rest. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. 
God, we bow our hearts before you asking that you would work this kind of spirit we have heard of today in us. Lord, expose and remove from us every inclination to trust in ourselves, every inclination to rest in righteousness we think we have in ourselves and what we have done or haven't done. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation and that it's not dependent on what we do or how we feel. Lord, thank you that because of your son, we can freely confess we have no righteousness of our own, but that through faith in Jesus, you are pleased to clothe us in what we can't provide for ourselves, the very righteousness of God. Lord, each of us look to you this day and we, we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen.